You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, I, I've told you before about the guy who was stranded on a, on a deserted island, and he'd been there for like three years, and then finally he was rescued when a, when a ship came by and they, and they saw his smoke signal. So they, they come out, and the captain's there, and the captain sees that there's three huts on the beach. And the captain says, wait a minute, I, I thought you were the only one on this island. And the guy says, yeah, that's right, I'm, I'm the only one on the island. And the captain says, well, then what's the deal with these three huts right here? He says, oh, well, he, say, he says, you see that, that, that first hut over there on the left? He says, that's my home. Uh, that's the hut that I live in. Now, the hut in the middle, he says, that's my church where I go to church on Sunday and worship. And the captain says, yeah, but, but what about this last one? What about, what about hut number three over here on the, on the right? What's that all about? He says, oh, well, that's the church I'm going to go to next when I, when I leave this church. <laughs> and so even on a deserted island, we can still go church shopping. You know, now, listen, all jokes aside, the truth is, is that finding a good, healthy church is hard sometimes, right? I mean, many of you have probably had to go through this where you, you've gone, quote, unquote, church shopping. You know, and, and maybe you get to the point where you think that you've found the perfect church and, and, you know, and everything's going great and then one day something changes. You know, maybe, maybe they get a new pastor and, and it's just not the same anymore or, 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 you know, maybe they start teaching some things that you're not sure if you agree with. Or then again, maybe you start having some problems with some of the people who attend that church. It's not the church itself, it's, it's not the, 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 the pastor or whatever, but maybe it's some of the people that make it hard for you to keep coming to that church. You know, and sometimes we, we think to ourselves, you know what, we need to get back to the, to the days of the early church, you know, get back to the church of the New Testament because that was the perfect church. That was the ideal church. Well, the church in the ancient city of Corinth reminds us this morning that there's no such thing as a perfect church. Uh, not even the early church, not even the New Testament church. Because this church in the city of Corinth was a church that was filled with problems. As we read this letter, we're going to see that there was division in the church. Uh, they, they were abusing spiritual gifts. There was drunkenness. There was divorce. There was sexual sin. And that's just the beginning of the problems. In fact, this, this book called 1 Corinthians is, is so relevant, it could also be called First Coloradans. And, you know, and, and sometimes you meet people who are like, you know, the, the church is filled with nothing but hypocrites. You know, I mean, it's just all these hypocrites are just always in the church. In fact, that reminds me of the brother of Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher. Uh, Spurgeon's brother, Charles Spurgeon's brother, uh, would, would often complain about why he didn't go to church. And he'd say, you know what, the church is filled with hypocrites. And finally, Charles Spurgeon turned and said, listen, there's no such thing as a perfect church. In fact, he said, if you ever do find a perfect church, don't you go there, because you'll be the one who messes it up. And so now on that note, as we, as we go back now to the first three verses, we're going to see that, first of all, the city of Corinth was famous, but for all the wrong reasons. They were famous for the wrong reasons. Verse 1 again, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. So that's the city we're going to talk about. The church of God that is in Corinth to all those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to understand this church that met in the city of Corinth, then you need to go back and read Acts chapter 18 in the Bible. Because in Acts chapter 18, that's the story of how the Apostle Paul planted the church in Corinth. 
And so in Acts chapter 18, we see that, that Paul, after he leaves the city of Athens and Greece, he then travels to Corinth and starts preaching the gospel there. People become Christians, they get saved, and, and he plants this church. Now, the city of Corinth itself was, was, was a relatively large city by, by ancient standards. I mean, it, it had a population somewhere between 500 to 700,000. In fact, it was one of the most famous cities in the ancient world at that time. In fact, it was the, the center of trade and, and, and commerce, meaning that, that most of the, that the shipping, that, that is the importing and the exporting for all of Greece ran through Corinth, making it famously wealthy. Now, not only that, but it was also a sports-crazed town. In fact, it was the home of the, of the world-famous Isthmus Games, second in popularity only to the famous Olympic Games held in Athens. And yet, despite all of that, despite the sports, despite the, the importing and the exporting, despite all of the wealth of, of, of Corinth, the, 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 the thing that really put the city of Corinth on the map was that they were world-famous for drunkenness and immorality world famous for drunkenness and immorality. In fact, when you go to Corinth, uh, you'll see this hill. It's the high, highest hill in all of the city of Corinth. It's called the Acrocorinth. And at the top of that hill, there's, there's this huge temple. And it's a famous temple. It's the Temple of Aphrodite. Now, the Temple of Aphrodite housed over 1,000 temple prostitutes. In fact, at one time in history, it housed as many as 10,000 temple prostitutes. And by the way, these were both female and male prostitutes who would go down at night into the city and they would solicit themselves to the sailors and to the tourists who came there trying to raise money for the temple. And you're thinking, well, haven't they ever heard of a bake sale? Uh, <laughs> and so it was, it was, it was famous for, for immorality and for drunkenness. In fact, archaeologists, as, as they've excavated the city of Corinth and, and, they've, and they've done these digs, they, they have uncovered literally hundreds upon hundreds of bars and taverns that littered the ancient city of Corinth. And, and so in many ways, Corinth was like the ancient version of Sin City, the ancient Las Vegas. Now, by the way, Denver is not that far behind. In fact, you may remember back in 2010, according to the Denver Post, Denver was voted the most dangerously drunk city in the United States of America. Well, there's something to be proud of. You know, I think, I think we need more microbreweries and, and a few more bars so we can be even more dangerous. And so they were world famous for, for drunkenness and immorality. Not, not only that, but uh, in, in these Greek plays, remember, in the Greek world, they were all about plays and, 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 the, and, and these different things. And so in their Greek plays, they had a famous phrase, and the phrase was Corinthianizestia, which is a phrase that when translated means to play the role of the Corinthian. And so in these Greek plays, anytime they had a character whose role was to, was to, was, was to, uh, to play the role of a drunk or to play the role of a, of a drug addict or to play the role of, of somebody who's immoral or, 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 or of a prostitute, they would say that you're playing the role of the Corinthian. They were world famous for their drunkenness and their immorality. So now it's with that background in mind that in Acts chapter 18, Paul leaves Athens, he comes to the city of Corinth, and, 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 and what he did for his day job when he got there, how he supported himself and earned a living, is the Bible says he was a tent maker. He would make tents Monday through Friday. But then on the weekends, he would go to the Jewish synagogue, and, and being a former rabbi, he still looked like a rabbi, so they would allow him to stand up and speak. And so he'd go to the synagogue and he would preach the gospel of Jesus. 
And as he would preach, uh, there were some Jews who, who, who would believe in Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah, and there were also some Gentiles there who would believe in Jesus. But little by little, what happened is, as Paul would preach, suddenly a riot broke out. Happened quite often when Paul would preach. He preached, riots happened. And so he preaches, this riot breaks out, and, and, and the crowd gets angry, and they, and they kick Paul out of the synagogue. Now, it's at that point that, that the Apostle Paul basically takes a page out of, out of the book of Ezekiel, and he says, hey, listen, uh, your blood, from this point out, your blood is on your own hands. You know, if you're going to reject the gospel, if you're going to reject the message about Jesus, then you know what? I'm going to stop preaching the gospel to you, and, I'm, and from here on out, I'm going to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. Now, when I say he, he, he borrowed that from, from the book of Ezekiel, the specific uh, chapter would be Ezekiel 33. In Ezekiel 33, uh, we read that, that God tells Ezekiel, he's like, Ezekiel, listen, I've got a message that I want you to preach. I've got a message I want you to proclaim to the people, but, but be warned, it's a message of judgment, that my judgment is coming. But Ezekiel, listen, if, if you are too afraid to preach this message and to tell the people and to warn the people, if you're too afraid to do that, then you know what? Their blood will be on your hands. But at the same time, if you do your part, that is, you share the message, and if they do their part, that is, they, they believe the message and, and they take action and they change their life, they repent and, and, and turn away from what they're doing, then you know what? Your hands will be clean and their hands will be clean because they changed their life. But at the same time, Ezekiel, if you do your part, that is, you preach the message, but they don't do their part. They, they, they refuse to listen. They refuse to believe what you're saying. Well, then their blood will be on their own hands. They have no one else to blame for the judgment that's coming but themselves. And so that's basically what Paul's saying. He's saying, you know what? I preached the gospel to you. I told you that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He wants to forgive you. And if you're going to reject that message, then, then your blood is on your own hands. You have no one else to blame for the judgment that's coming. You know, and this reminds us, you know, sometimes, you know, we're, we're talking to people about Jesus and, you know, and, and we're afraid to tell them the cold, hard truth sometimes. Listen, we have no problem telling them that Jesus loves them. We have no problem telling them that, that Jesus has a, a wonderful plan for their lives and that if they believe in Jesus, they're going to go to heaven when they die. We have no problem sharing that. But all of a sudden, if the person we're talking to says something like this, if they say, well, what happens if I choose not to believe in Jesus? Where am I going to go then? Well, that's when we get a little nervous. That's when we might be like, well, how do you feel about warm climates? And so Paul didn't pull any punches. He said, listen, you rejected the gospel. Your blood's going to be in your hands. You, 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 you are going to get the judgment you have coming, and you have no one else to blame but yourself because you chose to reject the message. And so they, they get angry. They kick Paul out of the synagogue. And, and what happens? Where does Paul go next? Listen to this. He goes right next door, according to Acts chapter 18. He goes next door to the synagogue and continues to preach the gospel. Now, in Acts chapter 18, we read that the ruler of the synagogue was this guy by the name of Crispus. His first name was Rice, last name Crispus. No, I'm kidding. But his name was Crispus. And, 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 and as Paul goes next door and he's preaching the gospel, the Bible tells us that Crispus was eavesdropping on Paul's preaching. It's like living in one of those apartment complexes, you know, like, like the walls are so thin, your neighbor sneezes, and you say, God bless you. And so, you know, Paul's preaching the gospel and Crispus got his ears up against the wall and he's eavesdropping on the message. You know what happens to Crispus? He gets saved. He believes in Jesus. He becomes a Christian. 
It's now that he's defected and, and become a Christian. Well, now the Jewish people in the synagogue have to find a new leader of the synagogue. So now they elect some guy by the name of Sosthenes to be their new leader. Now Sosthenes takes it upon himself to cook up a plan to get rid of Paul once and for all by basically pawning him off to the Roman proconsul. Said, hey, you know what? Let's, Rome, let, let, let's have Rome get rid of him. Well, his plan backfires, and once his plan backfires, uh, the, uh, the, the, all the anger that the people had towards Paul, they now take it out on Sosthenes. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 18, verse 17, that it says that all of the Jews beat Sosthenes. So now it's with all of that context in mind, I want you to go back and read verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So what happened after they gave him that beating? Well, evidently, they beat him into the kingdom. Evidently, they beat him into becoming a believer in Jesus. And not only does he become a Christian, not only does he become a believer in Jesus, but he apparently uh, partners with Paul, joins Paul's ministry, and is now traveling with the apostle Paul on these missionary trips. And evidently is now also the co-author of 1 Corinthians, of this letter. And so now as we look at verses 4 and 5, we see that, that Paul's letter to the Corinthians was really a letter of correction. A letter of correction. And so it says again in, in, in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always uh, for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched, that word can also be translated gifted, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Now, as I mentioned a second ago, this was a letter of correction. In fact, if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to take notes, uh, if, if you're taking notes, let me give you the outline for the whole book of 1 Corinthians. This will change your life. Write this down. Uh, and so here's the outline. The outline is, is that in the first four chapters, chapters one through four, Paul is confronting the division that was in the church of Corinth. He's confronting the division in the church of Corinth. Listen, this was a church that, that fought over everything. I mean, they fought over, over their, who, who their favorite Bible teacher was. They, they fought over their, their pet doctrines, their favorite doctrines. They fought over baptism. You know, uh, uh, when to get baptized, where to get baptized, who to get baptized by. I mean, they fought over everything, and that's why Paul devotes the first four chapters to confronting division in that church. Then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul then confronts the moral problems in that church. And there were several, as we'll see in the next few weeks. He confronts the moral problems in that church. And then finally, in chapters 7 through 16, the rest of the book, he then spends that time answering their questions. What you need to know for context is that, is that they had actually written him a letter first. They wrote him a letter asking questions, kind of like, you know, some of you will email me questions, and then I'll, I'll write articles about that in our e-bulletin. By the way, this is a good time to say, maybe you should email me some more questions so I can write some more articles. Uh, but uh, you know, but they, they, they wrote him a letter asking him a, a bunch of different questions, questions about marriage, questions about Christian freedom, that is, you know, what they can do as Christians and what they probably should not do now that they're Christians. Uh, they, they asked him, you know, uh, about spiritual gifts. They asked about the resurrection, or if you would, about, about the rapture and the return of Christ. They asked about giving and, and tithing. And so that's the outline of the book. He, he confronts uh, the division in the church. He confronts the moral problems in the church. And then the rest of the book, he answers their questions. But again, he plants this church in Acts chapter 18. And we find that, that Paul spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth pastoring this church, mentoring them and discipling them. By the way, 
This was his second longest uh, place that he stayed. The only place that he stayed any time longer than this was, a, was another place called Ephesus. He stayed in the city of Ephesus for, for a little over two years. But here he stays for a year and a half, uh, mentoring them and discipling them. And, and then after a year and a half, he leaves. And now, three years later, he gets this report that there are big problems in that church. He hears that they're suing each other left and right. He, hear, he hears about immorality and, and drunkenness, divorce and division. And that they're just running rampant in that church. And so now he's writing to them to confront them, to rebuke them, to correct them. Now, by the way, if you study the Apostle Paul's writings in the Bible, you find that he, he, he has a typical pattern that he follows. That typical pattern usually is that, you know, first he introduces himself, you know, the Apostle Paul, so on and so forth. And then he says something like, you know, grace to you and peace to you. And then after that, typically, Paul will then find something to praise the church that he's writing to. Something that they're doing good, something that they're good at, he praises them for it. And then after he's praised them, then he confronts them. Then he rebukes them. And we see that, for example, in the book of First Thessalonians. In the book of First Thessalonians, after Paul has his normal greeting, you know, the Apostle Paul, so on and so forth, and, and says, grace to you, peace to you, he then says this, in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, we give thanks to God always for, for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your, your, your work of faith and your labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And so in those verses, he's praising them for three things. Number one, he's praising them for their work of faith. Number two, he praises them for their, their love. And, their, and, 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 and then number three, he praises them for their, for their steadfastness of hope. He finds three things to praise them for. And then once he praises the Thessalonians, after that, then he starts to correct them. He starts to rebuke them. But that's his typical pattern. First he praises and then he corrects. You know, and when you think about it, you can almost always find something to praise someone else for, right? I mean, no matter who they are, no matter how bad they are, I mean, you know, you, if you look hard enough, you can usually find something to praise them for. Now, you know, some of us are, are better, better than others at that, you know. Some of you are just a little more optimistic. You always see the good and, you know, and, and, and you can just catch what, what they're doing that's good and, and praise them for it and compliment them for it. Uh, you know, it's kind of like two ladies are, that, that, that were talking and, and, and one lady's talking to her friend and, and her friend's the kind of lady that, that just always is able to, to, to compliment practically anybody. Just find the good. Just compliment anybody no matter how bad they are. In fact, she says, you know what? You're, you're, you're probably the kind of person who could even compliment the devil himself. And her friend smiles and says, well, you, you got to admit, he is persistent. Well, it's kind of like the Apostle Paul. Paul was able to find the good, find that thing that he could praise you for. However, when it came to the Corinthians, Paul could honestly not find one thing that he could praise them for, one thing that they were doing good that he could praise them for. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, then you know there's not a dishonest, patronizing bone in his body. He's not going to lie. He's not going to, you, know, uh, you know, blow smoke up your skirt. He's just going to tell you the truth. And so, you know, he, he cannot praise them for their work of faith. He can't praise them for their labor of love or, or any of those things. And so instead, what does he do? He just says in verse 4, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because, uh, because of the grace of God that was given you. In other words, he's like, you know, I guess I can thank God that, it, that, that you're saved. <laughs> that, that, you know, that, that he changed your life. I guess I, I can be thankful for that. Now, a little later in verse 7, we'll look at it in a minute, but in verse 7, he, he also mentions that they're not lacking in any spiritual gifts. So he's like, you know, I, I can't think of anything that, 
that you do that's good. I can't think of anything good that you do that's worthy of praising, but I can at least thank God that he saved you and that he gave you spiritual gifts. That's about all I can say. <laughs> and so the sad truth of, of, of the church that was in Corinth is that this was a carnal church. This was a fleshly church. There was very little good to say about them. As one writer puts it, he says, if churches were graded, well, then the church at Corinth would be given a D for divided, defiled, and drunk. And so Paul spent, as I said, a year and a half there mentoring them and, and, and discipling them. And, 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 and now, three years later, it must have broken his heart to find out how dysfunctional they've actually become as he has to write this letter of correction. And now as we pick it up in verses 6 through 8, we discover that the Corinthians were gifted, but they were ignorant. Gifted, but ignorant. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there we see in verse 7, he says that they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. In other words, the, the Christians in that city, the, the church in the city of Corinth, this was a church where, where, where all of the spiritual gifts were in operation. I mean, they, they spoke in tongues, they, they, they prophesied, there, they, there were people giving words of wisdom and, and words of knowledge, and, and all of that was happening in that church. That's why Paul's able to say, you know, I, I can't think of much, but I can at least thank God that he gave you spiritual gifts. But what's interesting is that later on, in fact, in, in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. And so the picture is, is that although they were not lacking any spiritual gifts, they were ignorant on how to use them. In fact, that word ignorant in, 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 in chapter 12, in the original, it's the Greek word agnoeo. Now, on the one hand, it just means a lack of knowledge, but uh, culturally and contextually, it was also used as, a, as an insult, as a cut down. In fact, we get the word ignoramus from it. I don't think I have to tell you that, that when that word's used, it's not a compliment. And, and, so, and so one of the sub-themes that we're going to see in this book is, is that among other things that Paul was confronting, Paul was confronting their pride. Because this seemed to be a very gifted church, but at the same time, they were a very arrogant church. And, and they took great pride in, in how gifted they were and, and how spiritual they were. And so again, they weren't lacking any spiritual gifts, but what they were lacking was the biblical knowledge on how to use those gifts the right way. And that's why Paul spends all of chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 doing nothing but correcting how they were using their spiritual gifts. Why? Because they were not using them right. They were using them incorrectly. You might say they were overemphasizing the gifts of God, but underemphasizing the word of God. And now as we pick it up in verse 9, we see that overall, Paul's overall message to the Corinthians was, was, was that God is faithful. God is faithful. And so in verse 9, Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, so I don't know if this, this happens to you or not, but you know, uh, there'll be times when, when somebody sends me a letter or, or maybe they hand me a note. 
And in fact, years ago, when I first started this church, 25 years ago, you know, I remember people would, would hand me a note or something, and, and I'd get so excited, you know, just, just, just kind of hoping it was like a note of encouragement or something. Because, you know, when, when, when you're young and, and you're dumb and, and you step out to, to, to plant a church, you don't know what you're doing, and you just so desperately are hoping that, that you're going to get a word of encouragement that tells you that you're, you're not just screwing everything up. Turns out, typically, it was typically not a word of encouragement, uh, but rather it would be a note letting me know, you know how, how I failed somebody or how I let somebody down, how I, how I didn't meet this expectation or that expectation, or, or, or a note that told me how, how, how somebody was offended and took issue with something I said in a sermon, or how they were mad at me for this or, or mad at me for that. And so now, even 25 years later, I, I still, quite honestly, get a little nervous opening up notes that I get. You might say that I suffer from PTNS, post-traumatic note syndrome. Well, now I think that perhaps the Corinthians might have felt the same way, especially after they got this note from the Apostle Paul. After they get this letter of rebuke, this letter of correction, they're probably a little nervous to open up letters. In fact, we've actually uncovered actual footage from the Corinthians opening up the, the, this letter from Paul and reading the letter. Actual footage. You want to see it? Here's, here's the actual footage. It happened just like that. That has not been doctored in any way. (laughs) Listen, here's the good news. The the good news is is that as Paul is is writing this letter of correction to this carnal church, this this fleshly church in Corinth, this church that was was filled with division, with with immorality, with with, with pride and and, and greed, this church that was was misusing, if not even abusing, their spiritual gifts, as, as Paul writes them, here was the good news. The good news is that God was faithful. The good news is that God's faithfulness was greater than their unfaithfulness. You see, they, they weren't faithful, but he was. And yet, as sinful as this church was, uh, there, were, there was the promise of God's grace. There was the promise that God would bring them to completion, that God would finish what he started with that church in Corinth. We're reminded of this promise in in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where it says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, he finishes what he starts. You might remember this verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, uh, which, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or his workmanship. He's working on us. In fact, that word workmanship in the original, it's the Greek word poema. We get the word poem from it. This word poema, uh, it means something that was made. It means something that was crafted. Literally, it can be translated masterpiece. The Bible is literally saying that you are his masterpiece. But listen, quite frankly, that's not how most of us view ourselves, right? You know, most of us, when we look at ourselves, you know, we don't see what God sees. We look at ourselves and, and we see some worthless block of marble, whereas he looks at us and he sees a, a Michelangelo's David. We look at ourselves and we see a worthless lump of clay. He looks at us and sees a priceless Ming vase. We look at ourselves and, and, we, and we see a, a royal mess. He looks and he sees a royal masterpiece. 
What we're saying is, is, that, is that you as a Christian man, you as a Christian woman, you are uh, under his workmanship. In other words, you are under construction. You are his project, but you are his unfinished project. He's still working on you. But he finishes what he starts. Again, Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. He's not going to drop you. He, he's going to finish what he started. I'm reminded of John Newton. Now, if you don't know, John Newton back in the 1800s was a, was a slave trader who then accepted Christ, became a Christian, in fact, later became a priest. In fact, later he, he wrote a song that we still sing to this day. You know it very, very well. It's titled Amazing Grace. And he also wrote something else. He wrote these words. John Newton wrote and said, I am not the person that I ought to be. I'm not the person that I want to be. I'm not even the person that I need to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not the person I used to be. Listen, that's you. You're not there yet, but you're not the person you used to be. He's working on you. Listen to this. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. And so the one thing you can be sure of is that when Jesus Christ comes into your life, he's going to make some changes in your life. Now listen, sometimes those changes come all at once, right? And they happen just instantly. It's like instantly you just don't want to get high anymore. You just lose your desire to drink. You just don't want to get drunk anymore. You don't want to party anymore. But then again, sometimes those changes don't happen instantly. In fact, sometimes, you know, it's a long struggle. It's a battle. And it happens not instantly, but it happens little by little by little. But listen to this. It happens. The one thing you can count on is that if, if Jesus Christ is in your life, he's going to change your life. Whether it's instantly or whether it's little by little, he's going to change your life. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I think all of that is encompassed in this statement in verse 9 when Paul says, God is faithful. You see, what the Apostle Paul wanted the Corinthians to know, and frankly what he wants us to know, is, is that because God's faithful, even when we're not faithful, he, he's faithful to correct us. Why? Because he's going to change us. He's correcting us to change us. Listen, one of the ways you discover his faithfulness in your life is by his correction. So here's what his word says about correction. Here's what the Bible says about correction. Job chapter 5, verse 17 says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Likewise, Hebrews 12, verse 6, it says, For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. And then there's what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus says, To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Now listen, if you're the type of person that, that, that doesn't like it when the Lord disciplines you, in fact, you, you kind of hate it, you don't, you don't enjoy it, then listen to these words. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. It says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. <laughs> so there's that. The Bible saying, don't be stupid. And so... Listen, maybe right now, maybe you're facing a time of correction in your life. Maybe you're going through a time of discipline right now. If so, do you know what that means? What that means is, is that God is being faithful to you even though you have not been faithful to him. He's being faithful. 
I mean, the, the very fact that, 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 you're, that, that you're being disciplined, the very fact that you're being corrected is proof alone that he still sees you as his child. It's proof alone that he still loves you. Why? Because we just read that, that he only disciplines those he loves. Someone wrote this about discipline. They said, the Christian life is like a dial of a clock. The hands are God's hands, passing over and over again, the short hand of discipline and the long hand of mercy. Slowly and surely, the hand of discipline must pass, and God speaks at each stroke, but over and over passes the hand of mercy, showering down a 12-fold blessing for each stroke of discipline and trial. And so, yeah, the Lord disciplines, but he disciplines because he loves And what the Corinthians need to know, what you and I need to know, is that even though we've been unfaithful, he's always faithful. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.